really well. Where are you? South London. South. Which bit of South London? Uh, Croydon. Yeah. Ooh. No, it's no, South Norwood actually. Norwood Junction. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Um, I know yeah. East Dulwich. Is that South London? Isn't it? Not as south as where I Yeah, am. exactly. But yeah, yeah so I'm yeah. in Watford, which is like the north version of Croydon. But where okay, does? Okay, so yeah, I'm a, I'm originally from North London. I'm from Camden originally, so um, yeah. Oh, I've been great. sort of dragged south by by expensive house prices, etc. It's such a shame. Camden is. I spent a lot of time there. I worked on Oval Road for a couple of months. Mm. I'm not kind of an Inverness Street good mixer kind of Camden fan. I just I like to get in and get out because I'm yeah, I'm far okay. too square for it. But yeah, so as you're going towards um, yeah the lock and things like that, yeah. well, sort of like the weird trendy pubs are and Amy Winehouse's old hangout, the um, Hawley Arms and that. Behind there now, they've got all these flats up and they're coming up and they're sort of renaming it Camden Village. Mm. And it's like, well, this is not what Camden's all about at all. So uh, yeah. Yeah, but the people who it. people who are moving in are yeah. so young that they barely remember a time when Amy Winehouse lived there. But it's been all over the news the yeah. last few days because it's the ten years since oh, yeah, Winehouse's yeah, death. Yeah. Yeah. How has it been for the last year? Not not great, but you know, um, I sort of get by. Um, I've sort of been working from home constantly for the last year, and obviously, like a point now, sort of prompted me to get onto this project for the first first time. I thought, well, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. So I may as well uh, finally do this thing that I've had in my head for about 10 years. So, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, well, that's what yeah. Pitch is so good at. Because if you've got an idea, they will fund uh-huh. it. I've, I'm going to be talking for the next few months to a lot of people who have been involved in the Youth Cup. And I know, oh, nice. I know Palace is very, very important when it comes to developing young players. Um, yeah. I might see if Roy Hodgson is available because he's not doing anything. Oh. So, um, yeah. Well, actually, yeah, where I am now, South Norwood... Um, literally 10 minutes away from Selhurst Park, so, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I've never been. I think I'm waiting for the new stadium to be built, but woe betide if yeah. Wolf Zaha leaves that club. But the correct managerial appointment, when Roy left, I said, well, he's got to be. And obviously the best qualified candidate, but uh-huh. when Patrick Vieira, who has worked in America, he's worked as Wenger's captain, he's played yeah. for France, he's won the World Cup, that's going to be a very interesting appointment. Yeah, I mean, you can see it going sort of, I mean, you can sort of rarely predict these things, but yeah, it could go one of two ways. It could really not work for a club like Palace, or maybe it could be the shot in the arm that they've needed for a few years, basically, so yeah. I hope so. Um, And we are talking at the end of July, 28th of July, which is before Ibrahim Mustafa, your book No Longer Naive, African Football's Growing Impact at the World Cup, uh, which is out on pitch comes out in the middle of August, not during a World Cup year, but it's the year before. How excited are you on a scale of 0 to 100 about the Qatar World Cup next year? It's a strange one because obviously there's all the controversy that are surrounding um, the selection and uh, everything that's going on with the stadiums and that. Won't, we won't go too much into it for fear of potentially libeling <laughs> somewhere or getting ourselves in trouble. But um, I don't know, and the timing as well is not great obviously mid-season how does how does the focus switch from watching Premier League or, or just domestic football week in week out and then it hits November time and you're going to be like oh, okay now I've got a World Cup to deal with I guess in rugby they do it all the time yeah. but it's going to be something very new for football so at this moment I'm a bit sort of cautious about how I feel about it but once it happens once it starts like everything you just get 
you just get drawn into it and you love it all, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah, you forget all the politics and it becomes about football. But come, <laughs> England go to Hungary, that bastion of human rights. Uh, but otherwise, <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be a very it should be a pain free tournament. Hopefully, uh, Southgate will experiment at being more gung ho. The lessons will be <laughs> learned. What was your reaction when Bukayo Saka missed that penalty? Yeah, I was I was devastated on uh, yeah just because just because it was Saka as well. I mean, I'm I'm an Arsenal fan. Um, I was going to I wasn't going to presume, but I was going to presume. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I grew up in uh, Camden, obviously. So I was fairly close to Arsenal. I, I, I was saying during the game to my partner, she was sat here and she's not really massively into football, and um, she, she was watching it with me. And I said to her, "Oh, I really hope that." Saka's going to be okay this was during the game I said I hope um, like nothing goes badly for him because I get quite protective of him he's he's young he's like 19 he's obviously got the um, Nigerian descent as well which is you know another slight connection I feel I have with him and so, so I hope he really hope nothing goes wrong for him today and uh, yeah so I totally jinxed him I think It's such a shame although one of the bright sparks of Arsenal FC in the last few years has been this kid Saka. He he seems to be playing everywhere. What's his best position? Is it as a 7? Yeah, yeah, stick him out on the right I think. Yeah, no actually on the on the left, sorry. On the left left side of a, a front three perhaps. Or he, I mean he start, we started playing him a wing, wing back as well. So he's very he's very dynamic. So you know, he's got that in him to play on that that wide left-hand side and he links up well with Kieran Tierney, so I think that could be something positive going forward for Arsenal in after a couple of years of not a lot of positives, really. And then, of course, Emil Smith-Rowe playing as a 10. Yeah. Uh, and then the number 14, one of the captains, Aubameyang, who I completely yeah. forgot, from Gabon. Gabon have not yet yeah. qualified for a World Cup. Uh, have, has the qualifying period started for African nations? Um, it's all been very confusing. I think some of, some of the qualifiers have started... But then they were obviously postponed and delayed due to Af- um, the COVID situation, of course. The AFCON was supposed to be this year, yeah. actually, initially. Um, and then it was it was initially, obviously, supposed to be in the... Well, because they, they moved it to the summer from the January um, date on the calendar they usually have. They moved it to the summer. They did that in 20, for the first time in 2019. And this was supposed to be the second iteration of that in the summer months. But... They moved it. It ended up having to move it back to Jet February, but then obviously with the COVID situation, it's been postponed till next February. So um, yeah, it's a lot of complication going on, and um, the qualifying for the Afcon doubles up as the qualifying qualifying for the World Cup. So um, yeah, it's part or partially mixed in that way. So yeah, and you do one of the great things about this book, No Longer Naive, is that you do mix in. Well, it's three things. The politics of African countries, which you can't avoid. And we'll, we'll try and do yeah. as little politics as possible. Um, <laughs> there, is, there is half a page where you go, you don't really need to talk about Nelson Mandela, but here is a potted history for those who don't know. I like that bit yeah. of the book. Um, but yeah, also the African Cup of Nations and the World Cup. Um, I completely forgot that in 2018, no, none of the five African sides advanced to the second round. It was the first time all African sides have been done after the first round. And you closed yeah. this book, which is tight, concise and tight and has um, some good stats at the back. Uh, Roger Miller, uh, if football, um, he said that African sides need to develop on a team level. So they need better coaches, right? Yeah. Why don't yeah, English I mean, coaches apply for these jobs? Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean... Um... 
one of just on sort of like the research, I was reading a couple of other texts and talking about how um, constantly African teams have always sought out European managers, still from the from France and places like that, and subsequently that really hinders the progress of African coaches who perhaps if they were better and obviously because they're more in tune to the country and mm-hmm. things like that, maybe African sides would be better if their coaches were better rather than constantly having to look abroad and saying, okay, let's see if this guy from, you know, it is more, it more often than not it is France, but, you know, there are, have been examples from Germany as well and um, the, the Dutch of Clemens Wostel famously taking Nigeria to the World Cup in 1994. But, yeah, there's just this idea that, you know, if they can develop coaches from within the continent, then things could potentially be better. I talk about Stephen Keshi in the book and how well and um, sort of well and not well he did with Nigeria and other countries. Um, and Togo, he also managed at the well, he helped them qualify for the 2006 World Cup. But the various issues that oh, it was incredible U turns, resignations, unresignations. Yeah. Yeah, and so if there can be a bit of stability on that front, I think Senegal with Alusise have it had it right. I mean, he managed them in 2018, and they were very, like you said, no African team made it beyond the first round, but they were very unfortunate because they were only eliminated eliminated by virtue of a yellow card. They were the first time ever they finished level on points, level on goals with Japan in their group, and um, yeah, it went down to disciplinary records, and they got, had one yellow card more than Japan. Which, sort of, which was the reason they didn't qualify from their group. But they're managed by Alou Cisse, who played in 2002 when they famously got to the quarterfinals. And, um, yeah, there's almost been like, um, for them, they've sort of structured it well in that regard. They built a load of academies there and they've tried to progress. Because they actually, weirdly for Senegal, they didn't qualify between 2002 and 2018. But they have sort of tried to grow an infrastructure within the country that will hopefully make them more successful in the future. Yeah, and I hope they do qualify. Are there five African teams going forward to the next World Cup, or is it more? Yeah, it's still five in 2022, and then um, 2026, when the tournament is expanded, I think there'll be eight African teams, possibly. Yeah. Hmm. And you do know, so it's 16 groups of three, and then the top two advance to the knockout stage of 32. Yeah, knockout round. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I mean, because it's, it's virtually a massive knockout stage. The, the groups of three are almost, like, you know, incidental because if you win two or draw, win one and draw one straight off the bat, that's it. You're through, aren't you? So, you know, you could win, you, you could potentially win well in your first game and then the second game, you know, you're playing for a draw. So, yeah, the, the, the three team groups are going to be very interesting to see in that World Cup because, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who kn- who knows what football will look like then? Maybe robot linesmen yeah. will come in, and who knows? Well, um, they're actually there already. <laughs> with indeed, with regard to uh, Senegal, uh, Vieira. I didn't know about the academy that Vieira has in Senegal with a couple of other blokes, and that has produced the likes of Idrissa Gay and a couple of the other 2018 World Cup sides. Are any other African nations doing that? And uh, Drogba might be doing something in Ivory Coast. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Drogba, yeah, Drogba definitely does stuff over there. I'm not sure how massively successful it is. I think the North African sides are trying to do a lot more as well. I think Algeria definitely investing more in youth because they've um, they went through a long period, obviously with again political instability in the country, meant that a lot of players that they produced 
will more often not play for France. You know, they would go to they'll go to Europe and try or try to play for France anyway, or represent France at youth level and effectively commit to trying to get into French teams, to French national um, senior teams, rather than potentially going quote unquote home to represent Algeria. But now Algeria themselves uh, ended up lobbying for rule changes within FIFA to allow players who had represented players at youth level to be able to represent other countries once they hit the senior level. And I think they're potentially looking to benefit from that in the long run as they, um, so, you know, the diaspora sort of returns home to potentially yeah. represent them. They won the AFCON in 2019 after sort of years, you know, the, the, the state, well, no, they qualified for the World Cups um, yeah. in 2010 and 2014. So, um, yeah, they're looking to a, a brighter future, basically. Well, yeah. England also took advantage of that. Declan Rice is the best Irish player yeah, of, of yeah. the last 50 mm. years, but he declared for England. Yeah. Uh, Jack Grealish, yeah. similarly. So, not the only one. And then, who is that brilliant player who should really be representing Guinea-Bissau? Uh, 18 years old, now plays for Spain. Oh, Ansu Fati. Yeah, I remember reading about that, because yeah. it seemed that by, by the virtue of one game... Fatty was being, albeit he had lived in Spain for a long time and he'd come up through yeah, Barcelona. Yeah. But all the same, yeah. that is not good for Guinea-Bissau. I don't know what their ranking is. But... Yeah, yeah, probably fairly low, I imagine. But yeah, yeah, because if you have, I mean, you mentioned Aubameyang earlier. I mean, he has represented Gabon, who are not necessarily Africa's strongest side, but he's more than happy to keep to play, represent them when I think I could be wrong about this but he could have had a chance to play for France potentially when he when he was younger so yeah it's an interesting one but yeah you, you, this is um, there was, I think I talked talk in the book a lot about it, sort of like the uh, former colonial powers taking advantage of their um, their links to be able to draw these players out and Vieira was the prime example I think I used of being born and raised in Senegal and then moving to France at a young age and then, you know, becoming one of their best players. And not just that, Zidane is Maghreb. Zidane is the Algerian? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But I remember studying the Black Blanc Burr team because it was an example of how great multiculturalism was. It was was stabbing the eye of the extreme right in France. And it was much like this England team. You've seen that poster that only is it Pickford, Shaw and... uh, one more of the starting uh, eleven, Maguire. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. even Harry Kane famously he, is of Irish descent. Yeah. yeah, Harry Kane has got uh, some Irish roots. I think maybe even Maguire might have Irish roots. I think it was John Stones, perhaps. Okay, so, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yorkshire lad, John Stones. Mm. Um, who would you <laughs> declare for? Uh, would you declare for England or Nigeria if you were called up to well, both I squads? To be, I need to be good enough at football first. I mean, this is an interesting one actually. When I was younger. My first World Cup I remember watching as a child was 1990, and uh, I obviously was supporting England. But my family were very much wanted Cameroon to do well because of you know sort of that the African links and things like that. But then over the sort of next five or six years, when I started to play football, um, Nigeria won the African Cup of Nations in '94, qualified for the World Cup in '94 when England didn't, and then won the. Um, the gold medal at the Atlanta Olympics, and I was always thought, well, if I if I make it, I, 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 I'll be quite keen to go and represent Nigeria over England, perhaps. Um, but yeah, but in reality, you know, I, I'm English, so I would pray for England. So, I I yeah. wonder if because I'm from Watford and I now support Watford, I think I'd support yeah. Nigeria at the 22 World Cup because there's a chance that William Trost Ekong, um, oh, yeah, who yeah. was a first teamer at Watford. 
Uh, he'll go through. Peter Atebo is yeah. on loan to us this season. And yeah. of course, we yeah, have. Yeah, success as well, briefly. Yeah, and we've got the Igalo connection. Yeah, well, the Igalo, yeah, there's a yeah. <laughs> small part of Nigeria in uh, Hertfordshire there. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lot of. I, and I'm sure he. I, the reason that all these Nigerians are coming to Watford is because of Igalo. And there, there is a big yeah. uh, black population in this town of about 96,000 people. Uh, so and it is great to see black players doing really well at Watford. Aurelio Gomez is a club legend. He comes from the forests yeah, of Brazil. Yeah. Um, we've got Andre Gray, the Jamaican international, and yeah, um, yeah. he's about to father Leanne Pinnock's child. Um, mm. We'll we'll go to Nigeria. Yeah, I mean, Watford, Watford historically have been um, sort of you know. In, I mean, I'm, I mean, uh, probably too young for me to sort of associate to have the full association. But you know, it's sort of the eighties and, th- and stuff when there was still a sort of uh, attention, let's just say, yeah. like racially with footballers. And then Watford obviously had Luther Blissett, John Barnes and players like that. So, you know, there's always been that thing, that, oh, you know, Watford are a team that are very considered in sort of my, my juvenile mind as like inclusive, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you we're know, the first community well, club, we're, we're not racist. And Luther is um, yeah. he's actually a free man of Watford. If he wants, he can drive sheep down the high street. Yeah. Um, whereas <laughs> Arsenal, you've got tons of black players. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Also, I mean, that's, you know, that's the part of the again as a child, what sort of draws you in. You're like, you want to see players that look like you and they're doing well. I mean, you know, Ian Wright's obviously like a, a hero to many kids from like around my area just because he was just this super successful black man playing for Arsenal, winning stuff. So yeah, I hope Ian Wright gets sent a copy of this book. And also um, with the punditry, he's brilliant. He is a brilliant pundit. He was a bit uh, too um, fanboyish. This. Summer, but then why wouldn't you? If you'd spent all that yeah. time playing for England, not winning anything, get to a final. Yeah, exactly. um, but the fact that he is on screen, Rio to a lesser extent. Um, yeah, but rep- yeah, I mean, Rio. Yeah, yeah, when you talk about you talk about the fanboying, I think Rio would. He kind of took it to the extreme, almost over the top, and it was like well, it's a bit it's like almost uncomfortable to watch because it's not you, you just there's that hint of arrogance about it as well that really sort of didn't sit right. So I, I yeah. thought. I, I think Rio Ferdinand's a great pundit. I think he's been fantastic in, you know, since he's retired, and he's always he's always had that sort of that aura, hasn't he? About you know, he's comfortable in front of a camera and it will speak his mind and things. So yeah, yeah. remember the World Cup mercs? No one remembers the no. World Cup mercs. <laughs> yeah, I remember. It. But yeah, I, I reckon if you got Mo Gilligan and Rio Ferdinand together doing a show, or Mo Gilligan and Alex Scott, that would work. I hope someone commissions that. Although Alex is. I don't know how she sleeps. She's so bloody busy. Yeah, uh, but it's busy, great yeah. to see her. She's on the next FIFA game, isn't she now? So, yeah. There's yeah. a, a commentating. It's superb. Um, so, there's a lot of history stuff, but I wanted to break this show up. Uh, Ibrahim Mustafa, you've written this book, No Longer Naive. It's about African football's growing impact at the World Cup, published by Pitch. Is it twelve ninety nine? Currently $12.99, yeah. Because I've, I've got this, I've got this book coming out with pitch yeah. next year. Will you be buying a box and then giving them to friends and family at a discount? <laughs> um, yeah, potentially. I mean, they've sent me through my, some proof copies. I've already given my mum a copy, and um, her first response was, "It's very technical." And I was just like, oh, "Okay." <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> my mum, the, the very casual football observer. I think it's just when when all the scores and describing stuff. I think she's kind of wanted to sort of gloss over those parts and sort of read like the history and um, the stories more than the actual football bits, I think. So, what, yeah. what I try to do in this football library, uh, and you do get your laminated library card with George Weir. Actually, no, not George Weir. 
Uh, you've got to get a Nigerian on it. Um, Stephen Keshi? He's not yeah. Nigerian. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. In this library, when you pick up a book, there will be a function that they're all hyperlinked. So you can uh. click on uh, Yakubu's, sorry, miss, and you can see it over and over and over and over again. It was a horrible miss. Torturous, yeah. <laughs> you, was there, yeah, when you saw it, was there kind of a gawped open mouth, just a, a dead person could have scored that goal? Yeah, it was, um, yeah, I remember, I remember distinctly, I think it was, well, it was like Nigeria needed to win, I think needed to win by two goals anyway. So it was kind of unlikely that um, it, it would have had a major impact, but it could have done, who knows, had he scored that goal, the game probably opens up and Nigeria get a couple more, but, you know, he when he missed it, I remember I was watching it in a pub and I just sort of like sort of leapt out of my seat with my hands on my head, sort of saying like "No!" that kind of thing. But how have you done that? Yeah. And then he scored yeah. a penalty moments later, but the penalty afterwards, and uh, yeah, it was against uh, South Korea, so it finished two-two. But Nigeria needed to win basically because of the two previous results earlier on in the group. So uh... yeah, almost like local rivals now, Argentina. So we seem to be drawn against Nigeria in every World Cup. Isn't that... I think Jonathan Wilson once gave that stat. It's the most played World Cup fixture, Argentina-Nigeria. It's utterly, utterly bizarre the way it keeps happening. And almost at a point where people aren't even surprised anymore. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, Argentina-Nigeria, yeah, of course it's going to happen again. So yeah. You might, yeah, you might win uh, once in the future. Yeah. Although... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I'm going to test you on your own writing. You say you've written this book. Your mastermind specialist subject is no longer naive. So... In the form of a quiz, um, who was the first African team to score a goal in the World Cup finals? Um, Egypt, in the 30s, yeah, when they um, went by boat for about a week to um, Italy and uh, they lost 4-2 to Hungary. Ah, okay. You know, you can probably put um, a pin in those sort of pre... Pre-war World Cups, weren't they? Because they're very, very much a different kind of tournament, weren't they? Perhaps, yeah. Nineteen seventy, Morocco uh, against Germany. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and I know this is right. Who was the first team to win a World Cup finals fixture? Tunisia in nineteen seventy-eight. That is a, a super duper stat. Can yeah. you name the kind of Frank Ocean of Algerian football? I loved this story. Oh, the um. You're going to have to give me more there, I think. It was was literally Frank Ocean because he put together an 11 in secret as the FLN team before Algeria independent. The guy's name is... Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. This FLN team, I don't know why there isn't a film made about it. It is unbelievable. I, I have no idea. Where did you when find I, this when story? When I was reading about it, I could not believe it. Yeah, it's mass- I mean, yeah, in, Alge- in Algeria, I uh, spoke to an Algerian journalist um, sort of in the research for this, and he says, yeah, it's like, you know, the, one of the biggest stories of Algeria as a country, not even just Algerian football. Um, but yeah, it's really strange how it's not... Um, been given in so much coverage like throughout the world. I think there's maybe I think Al Jazeera that produced a documentary about it many years ago, but I think that's the extent of um, what's been out there really. But yeah, they really deserve a lot more coverage it, for what they did. Cause it feels it, like it, the effectively, Yeah, I mean, effectively, um, you know, with the players that were, would have been playing for France in '58, they they stopped France winning the World Cup essentially by taking these players that would have potentially helped them, you know, win the trophy. They finished, they, what, they lost in the semi-finals, didn't they, I believe, France. But, you know, with those extra players, could they have gone on and won their first World Cups some years before they actually did? And indeed, one of those non, 
French Frenchman was just Fontaine in '58 who scored yeah, all those exactly. goals. Yeah. But yeah, this FLN yeah. team—it's extraordinary. If if you're going to flick through any chapter of the book, the one about Algeria yeah. is astonishing. Yeah. Not just because yeah. finish the scoreline: West Germany one, Algeria two. That seems to yeah. be the greatest World Cup result of all time because it changed what happened next. Changed the World Cup. Yeah, change the change the way that they played football in the World Cup, you know, because um, well, obviously, um, well, Algeria beat West Germany, and then um, but they lost to Austria in their next game. But then their final game, they faced Chile, and they won that. Although having been three 0 up, they ended up conceding two late goals, which sort of impacted their goal difference. And knowing this, Algeria and Austria knew that they could manufacture the right scoreline to take them both through Algeria's expense. Yeah, and lo and behold, after Germany took the lead early on, uh, the game was basically played at snail's pace to finish by that scoreline and see Algeria eliminated, which led FIFA to m- transform the way that they played the, these final games and make them play them simultaneously so no one could n- know... I mean, it's not foolproof because sometimes teams will still be aware of what they may need to go through, but... In this particular instance, it felt it felt so wrong that so they had to make these games play, be played side by side to avoid anything like that happening again. It is one of the worst things Austria and West Germany have ever done. <laughs> apart from apart from killing six million people, yeah, um, yeah exactly. They call yeah. it the disgrace yeah. of Gijon, and it certainly Gijon. is. 1986, Morocco famously beat Portugal, but who was the Maghrebi Platini who helped Morocco win the game? Mohamed Timoumi. This is is only a way for the listener to also look out for these names, because again, uh, African football in the 80s, these were the only times, unless they played in Europe, which was very rare, that people all over the world would actually see Africans play Football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, going back to the previous chapter, I mean, I don't want to give too much away from what the, the Germans before the game against Algeria readily admitting that they didn't even do any preparation because they just almost didn't care, but they'd never seen any of these players before, so they just had no idea what to expect, expect basically. It's ghastly. Germany come off really, really badly uh, in, <laughs> in this book. <laughs> Um, especially yeah. because in 82, you've got the Schumacher incident and the... Oh, yeah. yeah. One thing that this book is good at, it is very technical in that you describe goals, but that is sort of what football reportage is. It's a good mix between yeah. reportage yeah. and journalism. Uh, and the, mm. the book opens with the Ilunga kick, which everyone has seen. We're not quite yeah. sure why he did it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean... There was conflicting, um, the idea that he didn't know the rules is sort of the one that people have run with. And it's just kind of that thing that beating down sort of African football, oh, these guys have come out of deepest, darkest nowhere and they don't really know what they're doing. So that was the sort of narrative that kind of ran, that they didn't know the rules on on free kicks, which is strange because, um, you know, you don't get to that level of football not knowing the rules, do you? Yes, you would not be picked um, if you kicked the ball away at a free kick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, but then a story. I mean, the story. Well, since then, stories have obviously come out that I mean, he gave. He's given a couple of interviews. In well, he gave. Yeah, I mean, he passed about uh, some years ago. But yeah, he um, initially, I think he he came out and said it was like yeah that the team were threatened that they d- were not allowed to lose by a certain scoreline. They were not allowed to concede more than four goals, and um, and maybe in the state of blind panic, 
he feared Brazil was going to do something but, and then booted the ball away. But again, that also doesn't quite t- tally up because surely they just get like another, they get a retake and he would know that as well. So, um, but, and then he, he later in life said he just did it because he was just, it was a, an act of rebellion against his, you know, oppressive, um, the, the president of, um, um, then, uh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, back then. Um, and he was just, it was just a, an act of rebellion just to say, you know, I'm going to, I am going to humiliate you more than myself by doing this. So, you know, people do sort of, you know, point fingers at you, the government essentially, rather than the players. So, but yeah, so, but yeah, there are conflicting stories. So, you know, we'll never actually, I don't think we'll ever actually mm-hmm. have a definitive, explanation for why he kicked that ball away but it is such an iconic moment and it was like yeah the African African football had this reputation just because of it because like I said people took the first narrative that Africans didn't know how to play football and of course that kick would have been replayed and TikToked and Instagrammed and all of that oh yeah um, in, the, in the modern era yeah we'd be seeing yeah um, yeah it would be <laughs> yeah Yakubu yeah. is so lucky that Vine didn't yeah, exist. Just, just didn't it, yeah. Yeah. Um, with uh, Zaire, I didn't realise that it was Mobutu who named it Zaire. So it's always been the Congo, the Republic of Congo, the when Congo, it was independent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mobutu's yeah. patronage helped Zaire win the African Cup of Nations twice. Uh, they hired a yeah. Yugoslav coach. Mobutu changed Again, the nickname. Going back to what I said before about hiring European coaches, hiring coaches. back then. Yeah. yeah, Mobutu changed the nickname of the team from the Lions to the Leopards. And incredibly, in a match against Yugoslavia, was this the 9-0? Yeah. The 9-0, yeah. yeah. What happened after yeah. the third goal? He subbed, he subbed the goalkeeper for another goalkeeper who was, I mean, it was really strange because their goalkeeper seemed to be quite short. And he subbed a 5 foot nine for a 5 foot four goalkeeper. <laughs> and, yeah. Mm. And oh, Ilunga, are you talking about the red card, potentially? Um, no. The red card for Ndai... And Dai, who he kicked the referee, or it was purported to, but apparently it was a case of mistaken identity, and it yes. might have been Ilunga himself who had kicked uh, who kicked out and was trying to get himself sent off. As he again in his later interview, he claimed, but they got the wrong man. So yeah, no, and it, yes, it was a Gibbs Oxlade Chamberlain moment, which yeah, will never happen exactly. again. And it, even more incredibly, after all of this, uh, North Korea would do this forty years later, but. The team were held for four days and not paid on their arrival. Yeah. A lot of players lived in poverty and they didn't get the reward for this. And yeah, Zaya... they, didn't, they didn't get rewarded, yeah. Oh, what a shame. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's actually quite, it's really, well, it's a very sad story, especially when you, yeah, you know, this team that achieved so much in the years leading up to that World Cup. And then after that, it was just, well, that's it, <laughs> you know. And there wasn't a there wasn't a rebuild or anything that happened. It was um, yeah, because um, there was the same year as um, you know Muhammad Ali coming to go to Zaire. So Mobutu switched his attentions and sports to make sure that that was given a good a good like you know a good presentation. And then football obviously suffered as a result. And then yeah, the corruption in the country and seeing every everyone suffer basically. Oh well, we can't go into half time on that. So let's have a quiz question. Who contested the under-17 FIFA Youth Championships final in, I'm going to say 93, it could be 94? Yep, no, 93. Um, It'll be Nigeria and Ghana. Has that happened since? Have two African teams reached the final since then? I can't say for sure. I know that Ghana have won it since. I know Nigeria have won it since, but I'm not sure if two African sides have... I know Egypt have won. No, yes, actually, possibly 2009... 
um, possibly Ghana and Egypt faced off. Ooh, okay, I'll check that now and we can have half time. So if you need to have some oranges or if you need to tend to little <laughs> Isabella, uh, then you may. Yeah. 